AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 high quality ingredients. And what that means is each morning when I wake up, before I do anything else, I drink AG1 to set me up for the day. It keeps me clear headed, full of energy and focused on whatever I need to do, like writing the fighting cock, for example. One scoop once a day before breakfast and that's it. I've actually found that I've not been needing coffee in the morning to get me started. I've still been drinking coffee because I love coffee, but it's not because it's like a necessity to do so. AG1 is made out of the highest quality ingredients subject to the strictest manufacturing standards. AG1 is NSF certified for sport and this process involves exhaustive testing and verification that every serving of AG1 is exactly what you see on the label. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs for your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock. That's drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock to get started and to help the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great day and enjoy the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Look, my day job as a firefighter is tough, but my night job as a social media manager, my Persian cat Jinxie, that's intense. It's 8 p.m., I've finally gotten home from another 24-hour shift, and I just want to kick back with a cold one, but old Jinxie knocks my beer right off the counter and gives me that look that says, no drinking on the clock. But Heineken Zero Zero keeps us both happy. Zero alcohol, but just as refreshing. So I get my drink, and I can still work on Jinxie's new line of merch. Heineken Zero Zero. 0.0% alcohol. Now you can. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy responsibly. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. A camel turn Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Fighting Cock. I'm joined by Nick Harris, who is the owner and editor of sportingintelligence.com. 
and uh, is on Twitter as at Sporting Intel. And you're also an investigative sports writer as well. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I do stuff for the Mail on Sunday investigative stuff, digging into corruption in global sport, FIFA stuff, football politics, doping, all that kind of stuff. What, what, what made you get into that? What was, why was you so interested to, uh, you know, in, in the kind of that side of football? Because for most of us, it's just, it's, it's, we strive for it to be light relief, but you're in, in, involved in something else completely. Well, I mean, my route into sports journalism, investigative sports journalism, was quite um, quite unusual. I wanted to be a journalist. I actually wanted uh, to be a foreign correspondent and indeed was a foreign correspondent first 25 years ago. Um, I worked for a Japanese newspaper covering politics, economics, European affairs, the handover of Hong Kong back to China, all sorts of issues. Um, but I wanted to move into the British media and there was an opportunity potentially to do that at the independent, but just at the point that that happened, their foreign desk was effectively closed down uh, and I was given an opportunity to go to the sports desk instead. So I took that and, and a couple of years later ended up as a staff writer at the independent doing the sort of work that I've been doing for the last, whatever, 20, nearly 25 years. So you're undertaking this huge project that's um, essentially about club ownership and um, the, the the possible need for an independent regulator. Um, what, what's your opinion then of the state of uh, of, of ownership of, of, of Premier League clubs in general? I think the the issue of of, of football and 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 the integrity of football and whether we've got a fair game and whether we've got a game that people can really believe in and trust in ultimately does come down to the caliber of the owners of clubs if you've got good owners running football clubs then by and large you're going to have a better fairer game so what i wanted to do in this instance starting with the premier league is is to do a big project looking first objectively at what different owners have done with their clubs over the period of their ownership and by objectively i mean look at for example the amount of money they've spent on buying players on paying wages, where they finished in the table, what trophies they've won. Um, so there's kind of a, a deep dive data look at objectively have owners done good things for their clubs. And then the second part is a survey. Again, a survey for each of the fan bases of the 20 current Premier League clubs. And you can access that survey either by looking at my Twitter handle at Sporting Intel. And I think it's also on the Fighting Cop. We, um, in the description of this, you'll be able to find it or on in the Twitter post for this podcast, you'll see a link to the survey. Yeah. So the survey is, is, is tailored for the 20 individual fan bases asking, for example, in the case of Spurs fans, do you think on the, on, on, on balance, do you think Enoch have, have been good owners of Tottenham mm. and, and obviously if it's Manchester United survey you're answering you'll be asked if it's the Glazers and so on and then it also asks fans to to assess who they think outside their own club have been doing a good job who's done an admirable job as mm. an owner and that's that's also throwing up some interesting stuff and also which owners do you think are not necessarily doing good but but harm to the game in, in the wider concept are there any particular owners that you think are, are just doing a bad job that's harmful to football and then there's a regulator question, a couple of regulator questions. One is, is do, do you believe in a regulator and do you think they should have the powers to stop sovereign um, wealth funds and nation states and, and people, individuals backed by nation states from owning football? And then a wide open question of if there were to be a regulator, what do you think, what would you like to see that regulator do? And again, that's completely open question. So people could say and ask saying um, all sorts of things from uh, you know, a uh, 50 plus one ownership structure like Germany, they'd like to see, they'd like to see cheaper tickets, they'd like to see uh, better access for um, young people, whatever it is, um, sanctions, a, a more rigorous fit and proper persons test, um, all sorts of things, meaningful FFP. These are the kind of issues that are coming up over and again. We're nearly at already 10,000 um, responses. It will go through 10,000 today as we speak um and you know we've had at least more than a hundred um responses from every single club and in some cases you know more than a thousand so it's a big survey mm. so that 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 bit the subjective side of this project is very much looking at fans to see is the consensus across fan groups across all clubs and actually there's a lot of consensus about what what a good owner does and who people admire and there's 
there's a sort of consensus about clubs who people don't particularly admire in the way they go about things. And then there's all sorts of opinions about whether a, a regulator should come in and what that regulator should do. So that's that's the project. There's the objective side and there's the subjective side. So I completed the survey yesterday and it literally takes you 30 seconds or it could take you a couple of minutes if you really want to put your thoughts into your answers. There's opportunities for you to... Um, to it's not just about clicking a button uh, or choosing a club. You have an opportunity to explain your decision. But I was really... I. The questions are really interesting because what it is what makes a good owner completely depends on what you want from your football club. I would suggest, and I have no idea what the answers might be, you know, in, in a quantitative sense of what your from your survey. But I would suggest that the vast majority of fans want an owner typical of, you know, you know, a club that has had recent successes like Manchester City and Chelsea. Um, but but my answer for that section wasn't either of those. And I wonder how much of that was based on jealousy on my part or that I actually think football should be a much more um, sort of a, a, a level playing field. But I wonder if it was happening to Spurs, would I still feel that way? But I picked I picked, um, I picked Brentford as, as, as the one just because I, I really love how they've gone about their um their their managing and their finances their recruitment they don't overstretch they've achieved amazing things uh for for such a small football club and done things i just find it fascinating it's a much more wholesome way to achieve your place in the premier league than perhaps other clubs have done and certainly winning the premier league not that brentford probably will never do that but winning the premier league means less as a manchester city fan than it would brentford finishing fourth doing it the way they've done it i i don't know that's that was kind of my reasoning for picking brentford but then another person might say, "Well, look, Man City win it all, all the time. That's the way that, that's success." What did you have any predefined ideas about what you thought the answers might be coming back for that question? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I didn't. I honestly didn't know. I mean, football fans these days—they're so tribal. Everything is po- every issue is polarizing. You know, when, when clubs have suddenly had windfalls of money, fans can be react to that by sort of having a, 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 a um, you know, a, a mentality that they deserve to win stuff now and they'll do anything to defend the owners of their club if, mm. if they're rich enough. So I didn't know whether a lot of people would say, yeah, just, we just want money and therefore, um, you know, that's the way we want to go or whether there would be a sort of more considered thing of, look, actually, um, that particular question was very much phrased with who do you think is doing an admirable job as an owner, i.e., in the round, yeah. not just who has bought success, like Roman Abramovich or whoever, but who is doing an admirable job, who is actually a good owner. And and so, uh, you know, I suppose I, 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 in answering that question myself, I, like you, would alight on a club like Brentford, a, a fan, Matt Benham is a fan, he's put his own money in, he's done things the right way. I mean, when you go through and look at their recruitment over the years and the way that he's taken that club up through the divisions, he's put built them a new stadium. The same can be said of Tony Bloom at Brighton. He's built them a new stadium. He's put his own money in. He does things the right way. Um, obviously, Leicester is an example that a lot of a lot of other people are, are alighting on. Those three clubs, not just those three clubs, but certainly out of the first 10,000 responses, there is a lot of, a lot of people are saying Brentford, Brighton, Leicester. That's encouraging. Order. And and then people are also saying, yes, some people are saying Manchester City, a much smaller number. Manchester City, for example, and Chelsea are not going to come out at the top of, of, of the admirable thing, but there are quite a lot of people out of 10,000 saying, yeah, that's the way we want to do it, but nowhere near as many as Leicester, Brentford and Brighton. Um and and I too would 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 um would probably alight on one of those and maybe maybe Brentford as well. I mean, certainly one of those one of those teams. I'm actually a Southampton fan, and I I want my club to be run ideally by somebody who actually supports the club, is interested in it as a, a community asset. We'll do things the right way, the way that Brentford are doing things. You know, good recruitment. Southampton's academy has obviously been very strong in the past. We've we've had some some decent um, recent managers. Obviously, Spurs fans are familiar with one of them in particular. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's what I want for my football club. I'm I, in my lifetime. Southampton have won the FA Cup in 1976 and the Johnson's Paint Trophy. 
So I'm not somebody who ever necessarily expects we're ever going to win the Premier League or indeed be challenging for it. But I would hope that in a, a good season, we will have a strong top 10 finish and potentially win a cup one of these years. But I want my club to be somebody, a club that plays exciting and attractive football, that develops players and does things the right way. And you'll get fans of other other sort of rich, newly rich clubs will say, oh, you're talking nonsense. You're just jealous. You'd love a, You'd love an oligarch or a shake. And genuinely... I wouldn't. It's not why I, I follow football. I agree. Um, I agree with you, Nick. And and um, and uh, the actual there's something to be said. And 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 again, everybody. I think they they become philosophical, like Spurs and Southampton fans can be because we haven't had the success in my lifetime. We've won one FA Cup and two League Cups, which is only marginally better than what Southampton have done. So I can I can appreciate it. But I can t- I can tell you the happiest I've ever been following Spurs was under Pochettino, and while we came close. It, it didn't matter that those two seasons was were so much fun and everyone felt such a connection to the club and we were all f- pulling in the one in the same direction that to swap that for a league win that perhaps Manchester City might have I don't think it would have felt much better for them they would have had that explosion of euphoria once they won the league of sure but I think the actual experiences might have been comparable the difference between the two would have been that once they'd won it, they wanted more, and the level of expe- expectation goes up, and it becomes less fun and more about expectation and success. And I definitely think there's something in that, hundred um, percent. What, what, um, what, what's your opinion? I've got a question about Roman Abramovich. I'm not sure if you can answer it or you'll want to answer it, but sure, I'll, 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 I'll pose it to you. And if you just don't want to, then we'll move on to Tottenham. But what, what, there were motives some might argue for why Abramovich came to Chelsea and was um so sort of generous with his own money in buying players yeah could can, can you articulate why that might have been what why he got in, involved in football in the first place or yeah. Chelsea specifically no not Chelsea specifically not so much or, or or maybe that if that might be a part of your answer but yeah why he got involved in football I think I think it's I think it's sort of well known that I mean he is a genuine football fan, as in he's interested in the game of football. He watches football. He's obviously attended lots of football matches down the years. And I think was it the Real Madrid, Manchester United Champions League match of the early two thousands that was I'm trying to remember what I can't remember the score now, but that is that what those, grabbed him. Yeah, that really grabbed him. That made him think. God, I'm going to do this. And then, of course, of course, I think there's also there's a, there was a geopolitical element to it, as in, you know, he, he wanted to have assets and a place of, for want of a better word, safety, where he could potentially, you know, um, if he ever felt that he needed to leave Russia. So he made his home in London and, um, you know, there was that sort of that whole element, which over, over, over the years has changed, of course. Now he is, is he Portuguese now? Is that his latest nationality? I, I remember the, there was some sort of political um, manoeuvring um, recently. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly where what he did. Yeah, because because it, it wasn't long ago that um, he went to live or took had Israeli citizenship. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, he became a Portuguese citizen uh, just very recently in the last um, December, I think. Mm. Um, December he became a Portuguese citizen. So obviously he's still looking for places where he might be able to. You know, feel at home and, and find um, sanctuary, um, depending on on what different governments in different countries might have to their attitude towards Russian citizens. So I think there was an element of that, but also he clearly um, he was and is a football fan, and he's uh, immensely wealthy. So the money that he bought to to buy um, the club off Ken Bates wasn't really that much. And we all remember those early years when was it was Ranieri? Yeah, Ranieri was his manager, wasn't yes, he? Yes, yeah, as his first he manager. The fantasy football early splurge, and obviously that led to the first title in two thousand and four five, I think it was. And obviously they've won um, in his reign. Um, they have won the Champions League twice, the Premier League five times, uh, the Europa League or or the equivalent twice, five FA Cups, three League Cups. That's seventeen major trophies in his nineteen years in charge, at a at a ratio of zero point eight nine trophies a year. Mm. So um, I think. Chelsea fans, and obviously the survey is bearing this out, Chelsea fans think he's been a brilliant owner. And, um, you know, uh, they'd obviously think he's, he's a great owner and, and that's fine and it's completely understandable. 
Um, um, I would I would ask though would um, a kind of an independent regulator look at the reasons why he might have been buying a football club and using sport potentially to whitewash a not necessarily that this is what he's done but whitewash a reputation or using sport. Some might argue that the Newcastle takeover was uh, about improving the understanding or, or global um, uh, opinion of a, an area of the planet that, uh, that has quite a bad reputation. Yeah, sports washing you, you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what the regu- we don't know actually whether the regulator is going to come into existence. We, we think after the Crouch report that it almost certainly is, but what it actually turns out to be in practice, we're yet to see. And there'll be obviously lobbying on all sides to try and give it as many teeth as possible or, or as few as possible, depending what argument side of the argument you're coming from. Certainly from the survey so far, uh, sort of 10,000 responses, a lot of people are are saying that they would like a regulator to, to, to be much more um, rigorous in assessing sort of who fit and proper people are. There's lots of people you know, given an open question, open chance to say what they would like it to do, are also saying they'd like some sort of human rights element to that. Like, you shouldn't be allowed to be an owner, you know, for example, if, if you have human rights abuses on your CV or if you're a nation state that's got a terrible human rights record. Mm. I'm not sure in practical terms how a human rights element can actually be put into any kind of um, regulator's remit, given that a national level our government and most governments deal with saudi arabia and other regimes that don't have particularly great human rights records so i'm not sure in a practical sense how that can come into being but certainly fans are saying they'd like to see it as as many fans are saying they'd like to see for example more meaningful ffp financial fair play or 50 plus one ownership the point of the survey is to say to fans you know what, what do you want the game to be about? And actually, so far, on balance, from the replies so far, it's quite heartening that a lot of people want football to be fairer and better and essentially to be about community. I'm not, I'm not getting a sense of so far in the replies, and it'll be a week or two before we sort of wrap it up and start producing, you know, stories from the, from the replies. I'm not getting a sense that the vast majority of fans simply want a mega wealthy owner of whatever background to come in and buy them trophies. I'm not getting that regard. I mean, you know, it's just not, that's just not the sort of response we're getting. Is it that uh, now that, that the financial fan play and particularly the, the Premier League financial rules mean that it is difficult for someone like like Newcastle to, to really flex their financial might. I know they're richer and they've spent 93 million in the recent January transfer window, but they can't go out and do what Chelsea and Manchester City did in the early days of their, their takeover because there is a rule in the Premier League that will prevent them to do that. What What is that rule and how does it work? Well, technically, they, they shouldn't be able to do it because the rule is that you can only lose a certain amount of money in any given three-year cycle. So over and above what you make legitimately through revenue, that's match day, commercial and um, broadcasting income, the three revenue streams of the club. You're, you're not meant to lose, I think, the current is 105 million over three years. You're allowed to lose over and above what you've earned. Yeah, But of course, this whole area is is grey and I'm not convinced that it's going to be particularly tightly policed going forward so I I guess what we would probably expect to happen at Newcastle in the coming years is that they will sign a number of commercial partners probably based in Saudi Arabia who will pump money in Newcastle will argue that they're not related to PIF the um, investment fund that technically owns Newcastle lots of legal arguments about what isn't isn't arm's length sponsorship deals. And so there probably will be ways in which Newcastle's owners can funnel large amounts of money in to buy and pay players, um, regardless of, of what the letter of the law says. But again, that remains to be seen. So I think I think they will end up putting a lot of money in. But whether it's on the scale of, you know, Chelsea initially, Man City after 2008, that remains to be seen. What about uh, financial, fair, financial fair play in terms of the, the, the UEFA ruling? Because uh, often I think people get the two confused, like the, the, the domestic rules and then there's a European law that prevents uh, yeah. or should prevent participation in, in the Europa League or Champions League or 
the Conference League or whatever it might be. Um, what, what, what's your opinion of that? Is it worth anything? Some people think it's good. Someone, I mean, you're, you're a better place than most. What, what do you think of financial fair play? Well, financial fair play was introduced back in, 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 in sort of 2000 and, um, well, the first monitoring period was 11, 12 and 12, 13, but it, it was sort of put together 2009, 2010. Um, it sort of changed during the process of, of being formulated from a system where the people making it, academics and obviously UEFA officials, wanted to try and ban leveraging and debt, but realised that legal, right. legally you can't ban something. So they went for a system whereby they, they basically tried to save football from itself. There were annual losses of billions of pounds across the 55 leagues of Europe. Or I think it's fifty-five leagues of Europe, mm. and, and and it was it was introduced primarily to try to stop clubs spending a lot more than they actually earned, and and in that regard, it worked. It worked, as in the losses across all football clubs across all countries, generally um, were cut. So from that point of view, it works. And big clubs were caught in caught during um, that the early years for, for, for breaching FFP regulations, notably Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City. Um, FFP now, again, has evolved. I think UEFA, the pandemic has made things uh, difficult. So there's basically sort of, we're in an exceptional period where you can, in fact, again, lose more money because clubs are losing money because of COVID. And out the other side, I'm not really certain what FFP is going to look like, but... Manchester City, of course, fell foul of it again. Initially, got recently in recent years got banned from two years from the Champions League. Got had that overturned in CAS. Was nonetheless fined ten million euros for obstructing UEFA's investigation. That whole episode has still got more questions than answers about it. Um, I think you'd have to look at what UEFA did in that case and and see that they could have kept going at City and forced City to do hand over more materials that might have incriminated them but opted not to you have to ask why that was it could be a simple explanation that they simply wanted it the thing finished in time so that everyone could have certainty about the the next season um but yeah i don't i don't think ffp in and of itself in trying to limit you know um, what clubs can lose is is a bad thing i mean, i always come back to the case albeit a small and obscure case of gretna in, in Scottish football back in the uh, noughties when a, a rich businessman bought Gretna, who were, you know, a non-league club effectively, and took them up to the Scottish Premiership. And he was a, a multi-millionaire. He was quite eccentric. His name was Brooks Mileson. I met him and interviewed him a few times. He actually got Gretna to the Scottish Cup final against Hearts in, I think it was 2006, if I remember correctly, and they lost on penalties. But he had them in the top flight of Scottish football. And he'd had health problems for years. And one day, smoked 100 a day, drank Lucas A. That was his diet. Um, he collapsed next to his pond and died. And that was it. He was gone. His money was gone. And, and Gretna literally were gone because the per person who pumped money into them had built a, a, a club that just simply wasn't sustainable. So I, I use that as an obscure example, but by the same context, if... Roman Abramovich just, I don't know, decided tomorrow that he wanted the £1.5 billion in loans that he's given to Chelsea back um, through, through, through one of his companies, Fordstrom. I mean, he's effectively owed £1.5 quid by Chelsea. If he decided he, he wanted that back um, and decided not to, you know, be the owner of Chelsea, Chelsea would be in a vastly difficult situation they wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't go to the wall and cease to exist but if he decided right i want i'm going to now sell stanford bridge and the land to housing um sell all the players um asset strip the club and it, it, it you know theoretically that could happen to any club that is is owned by somebody who's put so much money into it and could just call the shots yeah and um, i think that was the thing about FFP. It was about protecting clubs, really, from the vagaries of ownership and whatever. I'm not suggesting that is, is or will happen at Chelsea. Obviously, it won't. But, you know. But essentially, you're still, you're, you're, you're relying on the, um, the, the, the decision making of one person. And the likelihood, obviously, why, why would he do that? But, you know, the, the people do strange things sometimes. 
and there needs to be some yeah. sort of safety net, especially in smaller clubs, if that was to happen. And like, like I, I'm actually, I don't, I don't dislike financial fair pay. I actually think it's a really positive thing, and I think it needs to be um, strengthened uh, and, and made more strict. But I think most people get frustrated of it because they do look at the bigger clubs and they think, well, look, they're they're, they're finding ways to flout the rules. And yeah. forgetting that it's actually about a safety net for, or or a, or a safeguarding rather for, for uh, smaller teams. Um, or just on that note, you know, in, in mentioning the way Chelsea run and, and the the model with, that Abramovich has, what, yeah. what what do you make of what's happening at Tottenham and Enoch and and the model that that Spurs have? What, what's your opinion of how Spurs are run? Right. So what what part of the objective part of the study where I said we're looking at, at money spend on wages and and transfers and stuff. Um, since uh, under the ownerships of different things there's a, a real one of the metrics that i'm using as part of this study is a really really simple one to, to as a starting point to say you know have this owner mm. be good for this club so i decided to look at for example the average league position um of each of the 20 current clubs during the ownership of the current owners. So, for example, in Tottenham's case, I'm looking at Enoch from 2007, because, of course, 2007 is... I know, I know they had a, a inverted commas, controlling interest for a few years before that, but it was only when Sugar finally sold his last tranche of shares and 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 Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis, could, you know, were properly fully in charge of the football club from 2007. So I'm counting the 15-year tenure of Enoch from 2007. What has been Tottenham's average league position during that time and what was it in the five years before they took full control and mm. has the league position got better or worse and actually across all 20 clubs most of the 20 clubs there's a pretty simple answer that if you if you are doing better and have done better during the tenure of the current owners than in the five years before they came on board then on balance they've probably been decent owners so the numbers for Tottenham is in the five years before Enoch took full control, the average league finish was 8.6, i.e. add up all the league finishers. So in the five years before Enoch, it was 5th, 5th, 9th, 14th and 10th for an average of 8.6. And in the, what is it, uh, 15 years since, the average has gone up to 5.21. So just from that very simple metric, have Enoch improved Tottenham from where they were in the five years before they took over? And the answer is yes. And I think sort of with some caution, but also with, with looking at other data, you'd have to say that in terms of, you know, having a stadium now that is up there with certainly one of the best in Britain, if not, if not in, in Europe, um, the performances on the pitch in terms of, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of, of, of recent years, you know, league finishers, well, under Poch of, of, four consecutive years in the top four, three, two, three, and four. Mm. Um, you know, a Champions League final, um, arguably, well, being being title contenders, you know, in that in that 15, 16 season. I know ultimately it, it fell away, but Tottenham could have been described as title contenders. Mm. In terms of the ambition of the the managerial appointments in recent times since Poch. I mean, obviously Nuno didn't work out, but, and, and I always thought as many people did that Jose Mourinho was never really going to work out. And so it proved, but now you've got Conte. So from that point of view, that's a tick. And then if, if you, if you, um, if you also look at in terms of the, the, the way that the finances have been managed in Enix sort of 15 years, they've had a net spend of about 300, million pounds so 20 million pounds a year um on average across uh, across edict's whole reign and that compares to for example um to in in pretty much the same the same time period Sheikh Mansour at Man City spent about 1.4 billion pounds against Tottenham's 300 pounds in and Tottenham have been you know a year a year longer and in terms of wages, Mansour's wage spending over 14 years has been an average of about 240 million quid a year or 3.3 billion pounds since 2008, whereas Tottenham's wages have been 1.8 billion since 2007. Mm. So, you know, you, you come down to financial prudence. I know it's a bit of a cliche when you're talking about Tottenham and Daniel Levy driving a hard bargain and being prudent, but 
things like your your wage ratio to your turnover is pretty much well certainly in the 2021 accounts it's pretty much 50 percent as opposed to 60 70 80 90 percent at some other clubs so you know you look at different metrics you also of course look at trophies and trophies is is one trophy one league cup in enix reign that's it um which is kind of important but on on the plus side of the ledger you've got an improved league position a well-run club financially prudent a new stadium um some exciting football under pochettino a misstep with nuno and Mourinho, but who knows what happens to conte and of course, you've got you've got downsides. You've got the downside, certainly amongst friends of mine who were Tottenham fans, were just utterly dismayed that Tottenham got into bed with the ESL gang of twelve. So that that's a, a downside. That you know, there's a downside of um, you know player. Should they be spending more money on players and wages? There's obviously an argument for that. Mm. Um, and, think- and obviously a, la- a lack of trophies. But you you just you know, most clubs, most clubs do not win trophies, let alone every year. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree with you. And um, and and anecdotally, um, when Spurs fans talk about the change in Tottenham and and the the moment where it felt like we were becoming more than what we were, it was around two thousand six, two thousand seven. Now, I was completely unaware that that Enoch weren't in full control of Tottenham from two thousand and one. I didn't know yeah. that and I didn't realise that in, it was in 2007 where the full control began because that is exactly when we started to look like a different football club, which is... Yeah, I mean, I mean, technically they had a controlling interest from whenever the point was they it's reached... 2000. Point, yeah, 2001 or two, whenever it was, when they got to 29.9%. Of course, they stopped uh, buying shares at that point because once you go over 30%, you're obliged to make a bid for the full control of the club and they didn't want to do that strategically. So it was only in 2007. Uh, I, uh, the, the, although technically they were in control before that, but in terms of Sugar being completely out of the picture and saying, right, we now own the, we actually own the majority of the club and therefore we can start shaping its destiny in full. Mm. That's why I'm sort of taking the mark from 2007 because that's when actually and technically they took full control yeah I think the in thing terms as well as technically the, good, the position you're in Nick and it's really interesting to hear from an outside perspective generally as well when people are talking about Daniel Levy and Enoch they think that we have an owner that's very good and we they're almost there's an element of dismay that there are there are a subsection of um, the Tottenham support who think that Enoch isn't the correct owners for us and that they're more interested in profit and providing um you know, glory to their shareholders than they are ensuring that we have the best chance of glory on the pitch. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I think obviously any owner, Daniel Levy is a Spurs fan. Daniel Levy wants Spurs to win stuff. I mean, that's just obvious. The way he's gone about trying to make that happen, some people will be critical of it. But again, I'm looking now at sort of, you know, um, responses from Spurs fans at the, at the moment. Now, there are some clubs where where the approval of their ownership, you know, Brentford, Brighton, other other clubs where it's like 99, 98%, 99% of fans, you know, are, are approving. The Spurs Spurs response is, n- is not up that high, but it is a majority, quite a comfortable majority. Is of it? Spurs That's so interesting. Far, uh, have answered the question, all things considered, do you think Enoch are doing a good job of running Tottenham? It's a comfortable majority at this point. And I don't think, you know, that's that's consistent. And then, and then people who who detractors. Obviously, there's a there's a section on the survey where you, where you can say, you know, what's the reason for your answer to that question? So, um, you know, people who 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 are against them are coming up with things like failure to balance business and football objectives, poor recruitment, one league cup in twenty years. But other people are saying infrastructure is world class. The team have been regularly entertaining and relatively successful in the past twelve years. Um, from where we were to where we are, it is undeniably a good job. Um, the last four years have seen us fall, fall backwards, but overall we're better off now than before they came. This is this is the kind of, you know, and I could go on, I could read you literally hundreds of different opinions, which will get reflected when we yeah. do it. But, I, wonder, but, I wonder the mental, uh, sorry, the, the, those people who think about Spurs in that way are less likely to be so vocal on social media, aren't they? Because they're, they're more philosophical and they're more... Um, reserved in what you mean, they... You mean people who are positive about Enoch? <laughs> yeah, they're less likely to go crazy on Twitter, right? 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is a cesspit. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's horrible. Um, but you know, people. I don't. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you, you're probably not going to get lots of people very vocally standing up and say we love Enoch. I mean, basically, it's a billionaire and a multi-millionaire. You know, one of whom doesn't live anywhere near Britain. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't I, yeah. I, I don't think it's. Um... I don't, I don't think any, I don't love Daniel Levy. <laughs> I don't love no, Enoch, but, but I think I can take a back step and think actually they've done a good job. But yeah, I mean, exactly. I think if you look in the round, and again, anyone's completely entitled to disagree with me, but the whole point of making this a sort of two pronged project is to look at the data, look at the numbers, look objectively at how much they've spent and what bang they've got for their book. Look at, look at, yes, look at trophies, but also look at improvement over time. Look at the positives and the negatives. And in the round, You'd have, I, I think, objectively, and obviously from the survey, from Spurs fans' perspective, subjectively, people are saying, on balance, they've been they've been better owners than than worse owners. They've done they've done more good than bad. And you look at the stadium, you look at the Poch era, you look at challenging for the title, you look at all that stuff. So if you're asking me, uh, have they been good owners? Of course, they've made mistakes. Of course, they've done things wrong, um, but on balance, the numbers and the subjective data from the fans is saying, on balance, they've they've done more good than bad. And I don't necessarily think that's um, that's a bad or controversial thing to say. I mean, I I know they sort of did mark their copybook with the whole ESL thing. I mean, some of my Spurs supporting fans were so furious that that they sort of jumped on that um, train, but obviously it didn't yeah. come to pass, and hopefully it never will. Yeah, I, I think we were all pretty sick but it wasn't just a, I mean we're sick that Spurs are involved but not surprised that Daniel Levy got us involved in that it's almost like well if everyone else is doing it we must do it otherwise we'll be left behind and completely ignoring the fact that the damage it would have been done to the game and that and the complete abandonment of the community club because all these clubs started as community clubs right they started generally yeah. out of churches or boys clubs or cricket clubs or whatever it might be yeah. and to abandon that would have been sacrilege to the traditions of the game I mean, I think one other thing I think is important to say in terms of money and success, and obviously money does, does play a massive role. The clubs that have spent tons of money are winning the trophy. So, so Chelsea um, and Manchester City and Manchester United, each of whom have won five Premier Leagues during their current owner's reign um, and Champions League and other stuff um, for some of them. But, but a, a key thing with football and success in money comes down to wage spending there's a really strong correlation and always and for a long time certainly in the Premier League it has been between what you spend on wages and where you finish in the table so there was a, a number of years five six seven years in a, in a row uh, in recent times when um, you know City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man U, Arsenal, Tottenham were in some order the top six wage spenders and finished in the top six places yeah so when you when, in the case of Tottenham and I know there's constant arguments about you know, Tottenham should pay more to get to the next level. But when you actually look at what they were achieving on the amount they were spending, you you kind of have to conclude that they're just being they're being prudent and getting a good bang for their buck. So if you look at the the, the most recent available wage figures for the big six clubs, just to put in context where Tottenham are in that, Manchester City are the, the highest paying um, football club in wage terms in the history of English football with a wage bill in 2020-21 of £355 million. Chelsea next with 333 Liverpool's most recent figures are 1920, but they're 326. Man United have 323. Arsenal 225. So there's a big gap. Man U are spending 100 million more than Arsenal. Um, and 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 Man City are spending another 30 million more than Man U. And mm. then Tottenham are 20 million further back on 205 million for the last financial year so if you compare man city paying 355 million pounds a year on wages and tottenham 205 manchester city of paying a full 50 percent bigger wage bill than tottenham and that's because they they've got you know effectively two 50 million pound players in every position and a 20 million pound a year a manager i mean yes they've spent it very well they've recruited well largely but the fact that you can spend that much money, obviously, if you, if, if you spend a lot of money and do it cleverly, you are going to have success. Yeah. 
Manchester United at the moment are an example of a club who can spend a lot of, of money and, and not do very well since Fergie left. But I think that is one thing that, you know, struck me as I was going through the numbers, that Tottenham still, yes, you've gone past 200 million wages for the first time in the 2021 season, but it's still, you know, Man City are spending one and a half times more. And mm. if you look at the genesis of the Spurs wage bill under Enoch, in Enoch's first what effectively full season of what I'm saying is total control. Wages were 53 million quid. It took seven, uh, six years to double to, you know, it went past 100 million for the first time in 2014. And then it's taken another sort of um, seven years to double to 200. But, um, you know, Manchester City's wage bill at the same time went from, you know, it's gone from 50 million to 350 million. And the thing is, is our club can't sustain, or it perhaps hasn't been in a position to sustain a, a significant increase in the wages we pay. I think what the what the fans will look at now, and this makes complete sense, is the the amount of money that it costs to support Tottenham. It's probably more more costs more to follow Spurs than any other club in the Premier League. I think maybe only Arsenal above. And you might say, oh, well, we're a London club, and it's, it's more expensive to be in London and all the rest of it. But um, you, you know, when it when it significantly costs you more. To, to follow your club and then you don't see any kind of success and yet the club still say well we still want we're going to put your season ticket prices up another 500 pounds in some sections of the stadium then there, yeah. then you can see the sort of you know areas of frustration that, that manifest yeah yeah of course because going to Tottenham's fantastic new stadium costs a lot of money and there might be some wriggle room I mean the, the best statistics of a 50% ratio of, of wages against your turnover is is low there, there is some room there for maneuver and probably um, you know that will go up a bit but at the same time you've got I think the the net football debt is 728 million pounds so you've got a fantastic stadium but you do have to pay for it of course you've got COVID the absolute blight of two years of COVID that we're you know two years now mm. um that's obviously damaged football finances in a non-COVID time time when that that stadium is full and Tottenham are, are competing in Europe whether that's Champions League or Europa League and, and and doing well in the Premier League and making 150 or 60 million pounds a year just from domestic from Premier League TV cash alone you know your revenues could be, you know, in a, in a Champions League competing year, it could easily be sort of 500 million mm. up from whatever, 400 million. Um, and, and then, and then obviously you've got room for room for manoeuvre and room to, to, to invest. But I don't know, I, I guess it, it's the whole thing about keeping in control of the finances that dictates that, that the strategy. Of course. But equally, you can see why fans would be frustrated with, you know, a single League Cup. Is, is it, um, is, is it? and this will be the last question, Nick, so I've kept you longer than I said, and thank you for giving your time. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the why we're seeing so many loans is it's like we're, we're balancing the book, and not just at Tottenham, but across the board, the loan, loan system seems to have exploded. Is that to do with COVID, or is this just the way football transfers are done now? No, I mean, I think, I think yeah, it's partly COVID, it's partly... Um, you know, it's it's probably better to tip, you know, put tip put your toe in the water mm. with a loan that you, that might have an option to buy. But if it doesn't work out, you don't go ahead with it. I think it's a mixture of things. I don't think fundamentally the transfer market has changed. I think it's it's been COVID affected and it's been affected by injuries, which partly result of COVID. And I think it will take some time to rebalance and, and see what what it looks like in the future. But I don't fundamentally think. The transfer market has altered, you know, and in, in the future with the new incoming proposed rules about the changes in the transfer system and who can have, you know, how many players and whatever um, will change it again. I mean, that's one to look out for. But I don't fundamentally think, you know, people are not buying players because of um, because they're, you know, they're operating in a different way. It's just circumstances. Thank you so much, Nick. And remember, please do fill out the survey. Uh, it's going towards a very what's going to be a fascinating. Um, is this how, how, how will we see this report? Will it will, will we see it in the Daily Mail? What, how, it won't be in the Daily. It'll be in the Mail on Sunday in in um, uh, some time. Sorry, later. not the Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah, Mail on Sunday later this month. Um, and yeah, so we'll be we'll be hopefully doing a whole series of reports about you know who. What what the fans of each club think of their owners, and, and one thing it's not necessarily surprising, but when you actually go down through the twenty clubs and see how many fans 
actually are, are approving of what their owners are doing. The majority of clubs, the fan bases actually are approving of what they're doing. I mean, obviously in places like Leicester and Brentford and Brighton, but but also, also some clubs where you wouldn't necessarily think that the fans would be massively in favour of their owners. There, there is a majority of people who think they're doing a good job. So that would be interesting. Digging down into some of the, the data, you know, that simple metric that I talked about, has the current owner got the club over over their reign to a better place than than they were you know before they took over and again a majority of clubs you know have, have owners who've, who've done good things to the club so there'll be all that and then yes seeing what the fans as a whole think are good and bad owners around the club and around the, around the country and also if there's going to be a regulator what do people you know want to to see so hopefully we'll be covering all these different issues, we'll carry the results of the survey, lots of opinions from all the fans who've taken part, uh, hopefully provoking a debate about, you know, what a regulator should be. And, um, and yeah, and then just just take the temperature of, of football. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, follow Nick at Sporting Intel, I-N-T-E-L, and, you know, for more on um, what Nick's up to. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks a lot. And everyone, if you could fill in the survey, that'd be great. Yep. See it on Twitter or on uh, Fighting Cock Twitter. And thanks for having me. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. It's the fight in. It's the fight in. Cock. It's the fight in. It's the fight in. Cock. A camel turn Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners' or renters' coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.